Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm Will Arimas. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, July 17th. My co-host April Glazer is off this week, but we're lucky enough to welcome back Maya Kossoff, tech writer for Vanity Fair. On today's show, we'll talk about the latest congressional dog and pony show involving the big social media platforms. We'll get into a recent controversy over whether Facebook should ban the prominent conspiracy theorist Alex Jones of InfoWars. And meanwhile, there's a new owner of the title, Wealthiest Person in Modern History. We'll talk about who that is and what it says about our economy. Then I'll be joined by Vijay Gaddy. Gaddy is a top-level executive at Twitter, in charge of their legal, public policy, and trust and safety teams. When I say top-level, her title is actually lead, so I was clarifying with the company, what does that mean? Is that like a VP? And they said, no, she's above the VP, so she reports directly to Jack Dorsey, the CEO. So it's her job to fight the bots, the trolls, the Russian agents that have been swarming the platform, all while navigating the laws of the dozens of different countries in which Twitter operates. We'll ask her how that uphill battle is going these days and find out how Twitter is thinking about the balance between free speech and user safety at the highest levels of the company. We'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw online in the past week. All right, as you've noticed by now, April Glazer is out this week, but in her place, I'd like to welcome back Maya Kossoff, tech writer for Vanity Fair. Hey, Maya. Hey, Will. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's great to have you back. Um, I see that you have been cranking out fascinating stories in the past week. We're going to get to a couple of those today. Um, How are things for you this week? Things are going well. It's a little rainy in New York, though, so that could be better. But uh, otherwise, it's good. Yeah, it hasn't rained here in months, so I can't really relate to you on that, but you, you can have my sympathies for it. But let's get right into the news of the week, which is that the big tech platforms were back on Capitol Hill testifying before Congress on their so-called content filtering policies. Maya, what does that mean, and why do we have these companies back in front of Congress yet again? So it feels like the umpteenth time this has happened, but uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Google all sent reps today uh, to basically go through the ringer and be asked the same questions that we've kind of heard members of Congress asking them for months. Specifically, uh, what we heard was right-wing members of Congress asking the platforms about things like censorship. Um, Most memorably, I think, was uh, Iowa Representative Steve King um, asking some questions about right-wing outlet outlet gateway pundit losing reach on social media and basically asking how Facebook's algorithm worked. and and there's a lot of there's a lot of that today. There's a lot of questions about uh, why why Facebook is is uh, censoring a Chick Fil A Facebook page. Why Twitter is uh, shadow banning conservative users. Uh, remove why is Google removing you know conservative leaning YouTube videos. So that was really the thrust of today's uh, hearing. Yeah, and and thank goodness we got more of that because we didn't get enough. The first time when we had those those hearings on Diamond and Silk, the, the pro-Trump Facebook personalities who claimed that they had been censored in some way by Facebook. Um, and so we got to, again, see the social media companies bending over to apologize for the alleged bias against conservatives. You mentioned Gateway Pundit. I, I actually am not, I will confess, I'm not a regular reader of the <laughs> site, thegatewaypundit.com, but I just went over there to look at it, and I, I see that the top news today is... 
Judge Janine Pirro exposes, all caps, deep state, Antifa, and anti-woman sentiment in the Democratic Party. I mean, that video. is the biggest news story of the day, so that That's makes sense. That's definitely yeah. the most important thing <laughs> happening in the world today. Uh, their little tagline at the top says, we report the truth and leave the Russia collusion fairy tale to the conspiracy media. Mm. So... Yeah, why is Facebook? Why might Facebook be uh, not promoting Gateway Pundit as much as as Gateway Pundit might want to be promoted on Facebook? That's a that's a I won't say it's a good question, but it's a question. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that if if you want to look at what happened last week uh, when Facebook convened this small group of media and tech reporters in their New York City headquarters uh, to talk about fake news and misinformation, how Facebook is trying to mitigate or handle uh, misinformation on its own platform, this kind of goes into that a little bit. So uh, last week, Facebook invites like a dozen, two dozen reporters to this soiree one afternoon in their offices um, and shows them this, you know, beautifully directed and edited 12-minute video about misinformation and uh, how the company's handling it. And um, Wait, did you, Maya, did you get invited to the soiree or I, were you left out? I, I was invited, but I couldn't attend, sadly. Okay. So so this video plays, and then afterwards, Facebook's uh, head of newsfeed does a Q&A with the reporters who are there. Um, and Oliver Darcy, who's a CNN media reporter, asks Facebook uh, if they're trying to fight misinformation on the platform why is InfoWars, a, a notorious conspiracy theory website, allowed to continue to post on the platform with a page that has upwards of a million followers? And Facebook didn't really have a good answer for him. They kind of stumbled over it. And Oliver kept needling them and asking, you know, follow-up questions. And uh, other reporters kind of jumped in, too. And it turned into this whole two-day news cycle about um, what Facebook does and doesn't allow on the platform and why. And Facebook's argument at the end of the day ended up being something like, we won't completely eradicate InfoWars from the platform, but what we're going to do is we might push it down in the newsfeed or show it to a smaller number of people. Right. And and so for anybody who is mercifully not familiar with InfoWars, first of all, God bless you and, <laughs> and tell me how you're living your life. But second of all, uh, Alex Jones, the personality behind InfoWars, is most infamous for denying that or at least questioning the reality of the Sandy Hook school shooting. And then in the wake of the Parkland school shooting more recently, he raised this false flag conspiracy theory that the students who had just been through this awful trauma were actually paid crisis actors by liberals trying to uh, trying to get gun control legislation passed. Um, and uh, you're right, Facebook didn't have a good answer. Um, this blew up in their face. I guess no good soiree can go unpunished. But uh, I actually, you know, I'm I have a slightly contrarian view here. I mean, I think if I were running Facebook, it would not be entirely obvious to me that banning Infowars is the right answer. I and mean, this is a hugely influential person, a hugely influential publisher on the right wing, and his whole shtick is that the liberal establishment won't let you hear the dangerous ideas that I have to to get across to you. And that's, you know, I just think Facebook would be when they be fueling that if they banned Infowars from their platform? So you think that that if they banned Infowars, it would kind of contribute to Alex Jones's sort of like martyrdom or his like sense of, of victimhood and kind of only like that makes I mean, I, I, I hear you. But at the same time, I think Facebook has an obligation to eradicate as much fake news as they can from their platform if that's what they say that they're going to do. So if their whole thing is no more misinformation, then by all means, get rid of the outlet that's perpetuating like the most inflammatory, uh, damaging fake news that's out there. Get rid of Infowars. 
Right. So Facebook kind of did get hoist by their own petard there because they were the ones who called this session with the media to talk about how they were fighting misinformation and all the success that they've had so far. And then they can't answer a question about why, why do you still have Infowars? So that, I think that's fair. But at the same time, it's, it's not just that Infowars, uh, this would feed Alex Jones' ego or feed his popularity. It's also just, I think, a genuinely tough question of where do you draw the line between what's acceptable speech and what's not acceptable. And Facebook's stance here is is not that they think anything goes or that they think that it, you know what Infowars is doing is fine and they want to promote it. Their stance is we're going to take action on a case by case basis. So if there is a story, a particular episode of Infowars or a particular story they're pushing that violates our policies or that's misleading, we're going to take action on that story. But they haven't done so much of that, that it rises to the level of banning the account. Now, even as I hear myself say that, it's sounding a little ridiculous because this is literally <laughs> what InfoWars does. They push conspiracy theories. It's their raison d'etre. So maybe, you know, maybe you can make a good case that they, by now, should have hit the three strikes or whatever, whatever Facebook's threshold is. But I, I feel like the bigger issue is that Facebook's whole platform is skewed towards stuff like Infowars, right? Like the whole problem with Facebook is that its algorithms select for the stories that are the most sensational and that have this viral potential. And that's why Infowars got so big in the first place is because instead of this old media world where everybody has to watch the same TV news every night and read the same local paper in the morning, Facebook has helped usher in this brave new media ecosystem where you can pick your own news and see only the stuff that came to your preconceptions and worldview. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that this is like Facebook's inherent problem, right? Like Infowars is probably the best example of, of what, like how Facebook got into this problem in the first place. Um, I, I don't know what the answer is. I, I, I don't. I, I wrote a piece last week about this where I argued that Facebook's whole new thing in the wake of the 2016 election meddling on social media, et cetera, et cetera, um, was was to push this idea of community. And like the idea of community is important no matter whether that's you sending one message on Messenger to one person or posting in a closed private Facebook group that you're in or broadcasting something to all of your Facebook friends with a Facebook status. Uh, the idea of community is super important. So to me, Facebook's explanation for the whole InfoWars thing that, you know, they wouldn't punish Infowars by by taking it off the platform entirely, but that they conceived that, you know, showing Infowars post to maybe a smaller audience was like a punitive measure. To me, that felt a bit hypocritical, right? Because to me, it kind of uh, contradicts this idea of community by by implying that there's something wrong with showing Infowars post to a smaller group as opposed to just getting rid of all of Infowars posts or their or their entire Facebook page. One more question I wanted to ask on the hearings today. One interesting point that came out of it was Representative Ted Lieu of Oregon suggested that the hearings were, quote, stupid because Congress has no jurisdiction over the content that appears on private tech companies' platforms. He said, look, these are private companies. They can do whatever kind of content filtering they want, and that's none of the government's business. Do you agree with what he said there? Sort of. I, I mean, I agree that the hearings are stupid, but I think I agree with them for kind of a different reason. Um, I, okay. I, just, <laughs> I think uh, I think the hearings are stupid by design. Like, I don't think that they're intended to really be able to be effective. It's really easy for um, Nick Pickles, who's Twitter's, uh, I think, lead counsel, um, who was on, on the stand today talking um, 
to, to run out the clock for four minutes while a representative is asking him a question is one answer. And and as we kind of discussed before this, um, it's really easy for, for somebody up there, whether it's Mark Zuckerberg or his legal counsel or, or whoever else, um, to, to just kind of say, I don't know the answer and we'll have our people get back to you on that if there's anything they don't want to talk about. So it's unclear to me what this is really designed to do besides act as some sort of like cathartic political theater for people who feel aggrieved about any of these platforms. That's that's a, the best summary I think I've heard yet of the of the hearings is that it's cathartic political theater for people who feel aggrieved. Um, but yet another story last week that I thought was interesting, and I actually wasn't I wasn't aware of this. I missed it when it happened. But I guess Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos became the not only the richest person in the world, but the wealthiest person in modern history, I guess, at least by some ways of counting. Uh, surpassing Microsoft co-founder Bill Gates by a full $55 billion. Uh, Bezos' Bezos's wealth, you reported, topped out at $150 billion. What's, what do you make of that? I mean, what's the significance of that besides the fact that, like, holy crap, that's a lot of money? <laughs> well, it's it's funny that this happened. I think it happened technically yesterday on, on Prime Day. And now that Jeff Bezos is is the richest person of all time, I think that's that's accurate to say, at least in modern history. You know, his... This is happening at, at a time of of unrest among um, some of the workers who who work in the fulfillment centers for Amazon, um, not necessarily in the U.S. but abroad. Uh, yesterday, workers in Spain, um, in in Amazon's Madrid uh, based fulfillment center, went on strike. They started a three day strike t- intended to uh, take up most of Prime Week. Prime Day week, I guess. And you also had employees at fulfillment centers in, I believe, Poland and Germany, both uh, striking this week, too, protesting low wages, uh, unsafe work conditions, um, basically asking for an improvement uh, there. So at the same time that Bezos is is kind of being acknowledged as as the wealthiest person of all time, you're having um, a lot of unrest that's only probably being exacerbated by by this news and, and by by Bezos's extreme unprecedented wealth. Yeah, and I think it resonates particularly in an uncomfortable way at a time in Seattle, Bezos's hometown, when housing prices have absolutely skyrocketed. This is driven, you know, by the success of Amazon and Microsoft and the the tech economy that they've that they've helped give birth to there. Um, and the homeless uh, population is spiraling out of control in Seattle. People mm-hmm. can't afford to live there. You have um, tent encampments on the streets. Seattle used to be sort of the more affordable uh, West Coast city compared to San Francisco and LA, and that's just not the case anymore. And so we get, once again, this this side-by-side image of unprecedented wealth and deepening poverty um, in Seattle. And I don't know that I have any kind of deeper point there, except that Amazon seems to, one of the big functions of Amazon has been to take all of the wealth that used to be spread across the brick and mortar retail industry, a lot of, in a lot of family-owned shops and, and smaller companies, and siphoned off a bunch of that and concentrated it into one gigantic company that, that increasingly controls a lot of the shopping that we do, especially online. Um, and, uh, so that's, you know, it's, it's made life more convenient for a lot of us. It's made prices lower. I love the fact that you can now look at reviews of all these different products side by side, but it's, it's an open question whether it has been good for the economy overall or, or whether it's been a net negative by just sort of gutting this, this 
once diverse and vibrant retail sector. And it's not only retail, right? Like you have Amazon extending itself into the grocery business and they acquired PillPack a few weeks ago. And like there it's, you know, I mean, what happens when when they become the dominant player in all of these industries? Okay, we're going to leave it there for now. Please do go read Maya Kossoff's Vanity Fair piece. The headline is, Is Jeff Bezos' Massive Wealth Becoming a Problem? Maya, thanks so much for joining me for the news section, and we will have you back at the end of the show for Don't Close My Tabs. Sounds good. All right, it's time for a quick break, and when we come back, we'll have our interview with Twitter's Vidya Gaddy. is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Vijay Gaddy. Twitter's legal, public policy, and trust and safety lead. She previously served as a legal director at Twitter, where she managed the international and corporate legal teams. Prior to joining Twitter in 2011, Vidya was senior director for legal at Juniper Networks, and before that, was an associate at the high-powered Silicon Valley law firm Wilson, Sonsini, Goodrich, and Rosati. Vidya, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Will. I'm really excited to be here. Is it fair to say that a big part of your job is to keep Twitter clean and safe and free of trolls and bots and harassment and abuse? I think that's certainly uh, a big part of my job, but I would be remiss, be remiss if I didn't tell you how many people at Twitter's job that is. There is an entire um, network of, of people cross-functionally across the entire organization who work on this and who focus on this day and night to make sure that Twitter is a platform that promotes healthy conversation. All right, great. Okay, so you're leading a big team of people whose job is to keep the bots and the spammers away, to protect elections from foreign interference and meddling, uh, to police hate speech and abuse and harassment, and promote healthy dialogue, even among people who disagree with each other. And so I guess my first question for you is, how's that going for you? <laughs> well, I think, um, I, uh, just, to, just to clarify, well, um, my team is responsible for uh, setting the policies that, that govern behavior on the platform. So we obviously work really, really closely with operations teams and the product teams to enforce and make sure that, that we're living up to those uh, policies. But I mean, taking a step back, what I'll say is this is an ongoing journey that we as a company have been on, probably one that we were late to focus on, um, to be fair, and uh, one that is going to remain a priority for us because I don't think that this is a static landscape um, in any sense of the word. As we get better at certain things, new threats tend to emerge. So this is an ongoing battle that we're engaged in and one that we take very seriously. And I think one of the um, things that I'm most proud of is our commitment to continuing to uh, get better and better, even in the face of what is a lot of fair criticism and uh, the face of really, really daunting challenges in front of us. 
All right. So maybe there's a way I can reframe that initial question that that's a little more fair, which is how well should we expect this battle to be going? Um, what standard do you think Twitter should be held to? I mean, is it, you know, is the goal to have no hate speech, no abuse, no bots, no trolls? Is that realistic? Um, how do we know if Twitter is doing a good job or not? I mean, on the one hand, there anybody who uses Twitter, I think, could tell you that they they still encounter a lot of ugly stuff on there. On the other hand, there was a report recently. You guys are suspending a million fake accounts a day. Can that possibly be right? I mean, obviously, you're working extremely hard on this, and it's still not a solved problem. So, what would success look like for your team? I think that's a, a great way of framing it. I think what we hold ourselves accountable to is. Um, a couple of different things is providing a lot of transparency into what we're doing, uh, providing clarity for the people using our service, and then being consistent, because I think that 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 is really, really important. And I think that we have a uh, a lot of room to improve in all of those areas. And I think it's it's absolutely fair to pe- for people to hold us to a higher standard because I think one of the things that our CEO, Jack, has talked about is that we were slow to really acknowledge and understand all of the real-world ramifications of behavior on the platform. Um, all of that being said, I do think um, that we are constantly showing improvement. We've shipped so many changes to our product, to our policies, to our operational approach. And this is not stopping. You're going to continue to see this from us. Um, if you look back to what Jack committed to in March, which was our renewed commit- public commitment to the health of the public conversation, making sure that we're not just focused on removing bad actors and bad behavior from the platform, but that we're actually also starting to figure out ways that we can encourage healthy dialogue and healthy conversation, even if the conversation is about a topic that tends to be very, very controversial. Right. That makes sense. And I I actually really appreciated how Jack Dorsey, your CEO, came out and said, we're rethinking everything. You know, we're, we're, we want to rethink from the ground up what would Twitter look like if Twitter were the platform that we wanted it to be. And you guys are focusing, as you said, on this idea of, of conversational health, of healthy conversations. Um, and that seems like a good guidepost. But, you know, Twitter has a couple of things in its fundamental structure that make that hard. I think it's both public by default. I mean, you can, you can go private, but, but by default it's public and it allows for anonymity. And that's just an explosive combination. You see it on Reddit, you see it in the the comment board of any news site, um, and and you see it on Twitter. Uh, Has Twitter ever thought about rethinking either of those things? I mean, uh, rethinking the, the publicness or the ability to be anonymous. What if Twitter had a real name policy like Facebook does? Wouldn't that cut down more drastically on the type of stuff that you're trying to cut down on than you know, whacking every mole as it comes up, even if that's a million a day? I think that's a that's a fair question. I um, I think being public is part of the nature of platform of our platform. I think it would be very difficult to see um, how we would distinguish ourselves um, as as a service in the world without that public nature. That is so core to who we are and um, the service that we provide in the world, which is really allowing these uh, public conversations to happen. With respect to um, our uh, pseudonymity, I guess that is something that we think about a lot because you're right, the the veil of pseudonymity does allow uh, people to troll, um, spam, uh, bots, a bunch of other things. And the balance 
the one that I think about a lot is that it also allows dissidents and activists and whistleblowers and journalists in a lot of parts of the world to speak out in places where they otherwise would not be able to use their real names. And it's all about finding that right balance. And we've had a lot of discussions about what that might be. And one of the things, well, that I'm really careful about is not to judge the Twitter service and the Twitter product through the lens of just one particular country. We are a global service. Over 75% of our users are outside side of the United States. And so when I'm thinking about policy changes, um, and certainly something that dramatic, I really would want to understand the impact, not just in our society here in the United States, but how that would impact societies in Turkey and Russia and a bunch of other places around the world. And so um, I think that there is some work that we can do. I will say that other platforms that might have a real names policy still suffer and are plagued by some of the very real problems that we suffer from. And so I don't think just changing our policy to to say real names only would uh, absolve or solve these problems overnight. I think some of them, some of the problems and challenges would get a little bit easier, but certainly other things in terms of enforcement at scale would still be a problem. So I think about this a lot, but we've also done a lot of work in the background, um, working with our product and engineering teams um, to really be able to go after some of the repeat offenders that use anonymity or pseudonymity um, to come back to the platform and use a bunch of technical sig- signals and other information that we have to try to block those sock puppet accounts um, even before they come back. And we're having more and more success there, I would say. So uh, philosophically, um, I still think it's a fundamental aspect of Twitter that makes it so great in so many parts of the world. But I understand the challenges of it. And we're, we're working to see what we can do to make sure that we're still finding the right balance between those things. Yeah, I want to note for our listeners, in case you heard a siren in the background as Vidya was talking, uh, she is at Twitter's corporate headquarters in San Francisco's mid-market district. I always thought it was kind of cool that that you guys were an urban company and based in a city, uh, as opposed to all the other Silicon Valley giants that are down in Palo Alto or Menlo Park and their sprawling compounds. Um, you talked about finding the right balance, and, and I know that that has been the objective for quite a while now at Twitter, when you're talking about balancing the uh, the desire to allow people to speak their minds, even with controversial ideas, against the desire for people to feel like they're safe and not being attacked for their identity or uh, you know elections being manipulated or that sort of thing. I wanted to go back to a quote that always comes up when people talk about the history of Twitter. And they, they like to talk about this narrative arc where early on the company was radically committed to free speech and just had this laissez-faire, anything goes attitude. And there was this famous quote that Twitter is, quote, the free speech wing of the free speech party. And I know when, when I, the first time I met you, I think that came up and you had an interesting anecdote about that quote. Do you recall where that quote came from? So I wasn't at the company um, when that was said, and um, I've been here for seven years. So it, it's it's definitely back in the earlier days of the company, which is about twelve years old now. Um, and I kind of cringe when when it said, not because I am backing away from. Uh, you know, fundamental principle that we believe free expression is a good thing and it is a fundamental human right. But because um, I think it was said kind of um, off cuff by an employee in our, you know, one of our offices. And it's not something that we as a company um, decided was our own slogan. So it always kind of makes me like laugh because it's not something that we picked for ourselves, but it's certainly been attributed to us a lot over the years. And I think um, what that what that does is it um, 
I think a lot of people then think that we are absolutists about this. And uh, that means free speech at all costs. And there may have been a time in the company's past where that was the case. And I'm not going to speak about when I wasn't responsible for these areas or when I wasn't at the company. But what I can tell you right now is that um, we do believe that freedom of expression is an important right for people. But we also believe that that is very much balanced um, by making sure people feel safe um, in order to speak up. And abuse and harassment uh, that is uh, against our rules, that um, intimidates people, uh, that insi- inspires fear in people, that silences people is not something that we want to tolerate. I wanted to ask you about a specific personality that's been in the news a lot this week, and mostly with respect to Facebook, actually. And that's that's Alex Jones of InfoWars. Um, this is a site that traffics pretty routinely in conspiracy theories. Um, some of those conspiracy theories have been pretty out there and probably harmful to people. And he didn't, he, uh, you know, questioned whether the Sandy Hook school shooting was real. He, in the wake of the Parkland school shooting, when these, these brave young children who had just seen their friends get slaughtered before their eyes, um, you know, were going on TV and talking about their experiences. He pushed the idea that they were actually paid crisis actors paid by the left to, uh, do a, a sort of false flag uh, conspiracy to get anti-gun legislation passed. Um, that's, that seems like pretty hurtful stuff. Does a person like Alex Jones, you know, why does he have a place on Twitter? Why, why does he, you know, why does he belong on Twitter at a time when you're pushing for healthier conversations? Without talking about specifics, although I'm obviously aware of, of Alex Jones and, and um, Infowars, what I would say is that philosophically, we have thought very hard about how to approach um, misinformation. And as a company, as much as we and many of the individuals might have deeply held beliefs about what is true and what is factual and what's appropriate, felt that we should not as a company be in the position of verifying truth. um, Because that is not where we want to be, nor do we think it's our role or responsibility in society. Now, that does leave a gap for what we call like behavior that starts online and and um, might go into the real world. And we definitely have policy-based um, decisions that we can make about when we see that type of behavior happening, like inciting people to violence, as an like example. With the Charlottesville, like with the, the Charlottesville uh, violence that was where the, the protest and counter-protest were both organized partly on Twitter. That's right. And if there was a specific call to violence, a violent protest, um, that would be something that we would obviously take action on as part of as incitement to violence. So uh, we think about that a lot. But the fundamental aspect of whether X is true or Y is true and should we ban them because it is not, um, I'm going to leave that to a lot of people out in the world who uh, spend a lot of time thinking about this and have a lot more context to be able to dispel uh, rumors or myths or um, falsehoods that happen all the time. And I think that that is one of the things I actually love about the platform is that you can see a tweet and it can contain a lie or uh, a misstatement or conspiracy theory or whatever it is. And oftentimes the first tweet underneath it, the first reply is this is not true and this is why. And it does put a lot on the people using their service to judge the credibility of those two things against each other. And I think that is an area actually where Twitter can help. And that is something that as part of our overall health initiatives, we're really focused on, which is providing more context about the people um, who are in these conversations to be able to give information to the people using the service about the relative credibility of those two accounts. 
Okay, so so just to be clear, I mean, the reason Facebook has gotten criticized so much over uh, its tolerance of Alex Jones is that it's in this big campaign to fight misinformation. But you're saying that Twitter is actually not in a campaign to fight misinformation, and fighting misinformation isn't one of the one of the core jobs uh, that, that that you think that Twitter should take on. Well, I think that it's it's a different characterization. Our job is to improve the health of the com- public conversation, and part of that is increasing the quality of information on the service. But I am not um, claiming that we are going to be battling or, or able to battle every falsehood or lie or aspect of misinformation that's on the platform. At the scale that we're operating, I think that's unrealistic. And certainly, I understand people are like, but you know this particular thing is false. Why can't you just take action on this? That's just not how our policies work. Our policies are meant to operate at scale globally around the world. And so while I do think information quality and battling the spread of misinformation is something that we as a company are focused on, that is not to say that we are going to take action on individual accounts because there are allegations that they are um, false or misleading. All right. One other question that I wanted to ask you along these lines, I know you're, you're limited in what you can say about individual accounts, but why did it take so long to disable Guccifer 2.0, um, which was using Twitter to, to share stolen information, according to the Mueller indictment that just came out. Um, the Guccifer 2.0 uh, account, which is apparently, we now know, run by Russian agents, or at least that's what the indictment said, was only shut down this past weekend. Um, but but there were, you know, people knew that it had been sharing stolen documents for a long time before that. Did, do you know why Twitter couldn't take action earlier on, on Guccifer 2.0? I guess what I, what I would say to that is, um, without speaking as to that specific account, um, we're definitely taking a look at our policies to understand um, any gaps that we might have. We currently prohibit, um, you know, the posting of uh, tweets that contain private information, um, but we don't um, clearly and explicitly prohibit the. I guess, spreading of hacked materials. That's not something that's a, a clear violation of the rules as um, they've been previously enforced. So that's something we're taking a close look at to make sure that the platform is not being used in ways that are not uh, committed to a healthy discourse. As to you know other types of situations, sometimes we are just looking for more facts before we can act, more context. Um, and um, you know, we try to take action as quickly as we can. Um, and in some cases, we just need more information before we can do that. So I wanted to, to give you one last question. And, and I went on Twitter uh, before I talked to you and put out a tweet that just said, um, hey, I'm, I'm going to be interviewing Vigigatti today on If Then. Um, send me one good, tough question that I should ask her. And I thought that the, what happened afterwards sort of illustrated for me both the wonderful things about Twitter as a platform and the challenges. So uh, you replied in a, in, a, in you know a friendly and professional way. And then Jack Dorsey, your CEO, retweeted it and said, yes, you know, ask us some questions. And so then then my mentions were just absolutely flooded with questions because Jack has such an immense following. And then Gab.ai, which is an, an alt-right uh, sort of rival of Twitter, it's a social platform um, that's that's favored by uh, members of the alt-right, also retweeted it with their own spin. So then I had my mentions flooded with people making racist and sexist comments and that sort of thing. Um, but, but beneath all that noise, there were some really good questions that a couple people asked. And so with that long preamble, um, I wanted to ask you, uh, one from uh, Casey Newton, who's a, a social media reporter <laughs> at The Verge. Um, Casey said, what's your latest thinking on what verification should mean on Twitter? 
Oh, I'm laughing because I thought Casey's first question was about the edit feature. So I thought you were going to ask me that question. I ignored that one because he's asked you guys that five times. Okay, great. Um, Verification I can handle, no problem. It's not controversial at all compared to uh, the edit feature. Um, In all uh, all seriousness, so... Um, we have we obviously paused the the official public channel for verification last fall, and we said we needed to holistically rethink the program because it was it was broken. A um, couple of reasons, but the main one is um, it really conflated identity with um, endorsement by Twitter, and that was not a place that we wanted to be. So we're we're in the process of rethinking that. Um, I appreciate that it's not moving quite as fast as we would all like it to. And I think you're going to hear a lot more about that actually from Kayvon, who um, is going to be tweeting. Kayvon leads our consumer product team, and he's going to be um, tweeting about that. So stay tuned on that front. Um, there's more coming. Um, and I think that this is an area where we have some work to do for sure. Um, but it's probably not as high of a priority for us right now as making sure that we're really focused on information quality, particularly leading up to um, the midterm elections here in the United States. All right. And I know I said I would ask just one, but there was actually another one that I thought was so good I wanted to ask it. It's from Renee DeResta, um, who is an activist and an analyst who works on issues of algorithmic accountability and fairness. Um, She's testified to Congress on that sort of thing. Uh, But her question was, have your views on harassment changed since becoming a parent? I know that you are a new mom. And I just wondered if that has affected how you think about these issues at all. That's a great question. Thank you, Renee, for asking it. I don't think so. Um, I try very hard um, as part of my job to reach out to people using the service and understanding their experiences on the on the platform, um, regardless of my own personal situation. And I try to, to hear from a diverse view, viewpoint of people. Um, I think being a mom has changed me fundamentally in so many ways that I'm not sure I could necessarily isolate that. But I don't think specifically there's something that I now think I've, um, I've, you know, rethinking because I'm a mom. Um, I am a, a very different person, though. So it's hard to know what what about that comes through day to day. But I can't point to anything specific. All right. Vijay thank you so much for joining us on If Then. Thank you. Well, it's a lot of fun. Talk to you soon. All right, one last break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we saw on the web this week. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. All right, it's time once again for Don't Close My Tabs. Some of the most interesting or bizarre or troubling stories we read online in the past week. Maya, what is your tab that you could not close this week? So I think this fits into the latter category of troubling, but I read a Medium post by a guy named Jackson Cunningham who uh, runs a company that makes cat furniture. 
Uh, it's called Digital Exile, How I Got Banned for Life from Airbnb. And in this post that I saw floating around Twitter last week, Jackson had had gotten a message that was very cryptic from Airbnb, basically telling him that he was banned from the platform for life. And when he emailed to kind of ask, you know, what had prompted this, he had been an early Airbnb user. He had referred a ton of friends to Airbnb. Uh, he not only didn't get a response that was helpful at all, he... he uh, he got a, a a second response when he asked a, a follow up clarifying email, um, telling him that the de- the decision was irreversible, that Airbnb wasn't obligated to provide an explanation, and that it wouldn't be reversed. And then they basically said that uh, the matter is closed, and they wouldn't reply to any other inquiries about the topic. So he kind of went back through uh, to see what it could have been that that got him kicked off the platform. And uh, while he, I guess, will never know for sure because the company is not going to talk about it. Um, he he had uh not a bad experience at at like a at an Airbnb with his girlfriend or wife uh recently but but it wasn't i mean they he didn't leave a super positive review and the the Airbnb host didn't leave a super positive re- a review about him um but this what this whole thing kind of points to and what he kind of gets to towards the end of this piece is um the fact that we're becoming increasingly dependent on a really small group of big tech companies uh, that kind of guide us through our daily routines. Like imagine being banned from Google and not being allowed to manage your Google calendar or look at your email if you use Gmail or uh, do a Google search or, you know, book an Uber or a Lyft or, or you know, buy anything from Amazon. Um, and I think the thrust of this piece kind of fits in with the uneasiness that that I think we've kind of helped for the past year about the state of big tech and uh, moving forward, you know, like, do these companies require oversight or regulation? Uh, if not, what can be done so that if this sort of thing happens to somebody, how can they ensure that they can at least, you know, get an answer or, or talk to somebody at the companies and, and not be cut off cold? Yeah, this is a this is a crazy story. And I hadn't seen it before you shared it with me. Um the language that he posted from Airbnb is really brutal. Yeah, I I want to know more. I mean, I want to I want to ask Airbnb, Airbnb what the heck is going on here. I feel like they must have a side to this story. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right that, that no matter what the specifics were, it just shows the the way in which we are vulnerable now if we do or say the wrong thing that we can be uh, cast off of a platform. And because, again, it's, it goes back to that issue, because the platforms are so big, it's not like there are four other different versions of Airbnb you can use. I mean, there are there are some alternatives, but um, it's, it's just, it can affect your life probably more dramatically than if you got banned from like Ramada for life or Holiday <laughs> Inn from, for life or something like that. You could just go to the, whatever, the Hyatt or Days Inn. Mm-hmm. Well, what's your tab? All right. My tab this week is a meme. I hope you all will forgive me for that. I actually don't know where it comes from, and we'll try to track this down. And if I can figure it out, we'll post it on the show page. The version that I saw was originally posted by a Facebook account called Aussie Anarchist Meme Squat. And yes, that is Meme Squat, not Meme Squad. Not sure if there's some hidden meaning there that I'm missing or if they're just bad at spelling, but I'll do my best to describe how the diagram works. You have on, in one circle, you have gamers. Another circle, you have people who read Jordan Peterson. The third circle is tech workers. And there are a few overlaps between the three of these, but right in the middle of the Venn diagram is the name Elon Musk. <laughs> and somebody, somebody posted this in our, in our slate slack on our, in our business and technology team with the question, 
how did we come to this? Like, I want a timeline of how we got to this point with Elon Musk, who used to be like the the hero of Silicon Valley, right? Like he was the person when when Peter Thiel was complaining that we wanted flying cars and we we got 140 characters. Musk was the person who was building the flying cars. He was building space rockets. He's getting us off of the carbon, uh, the fossil fuel economy. He was going to save the world uh, from climate change. And now he's become this this bizarre figure who spends all day tweeting angrily and bitterly, it seems, despite the massive success he has enjoyed in his life and, and career so far. Um, and it's just, I, I don't know how we got here. I mean, I, there was a good BuzzFeed feature a couple of weeks ago. I guess this will be the, sort of the second part to my tab. This is the one you can actually find for yourself online. It's a story in BuzzFeed News with the headline, Elon Musk has always been at war with the media. But basically, the argument is that this is who Elon Musk has always been, but now he has finally either scared off or fired so many PR people that he's basically unmanaged at this point, and nobody can tell him no because he's so successful. And so, you know, this is this is what he's doing now. He's a he's like a part time Twitter personality in addition to running Tesla and SpaceX and the boring company and Solar City and probably some others I'm missing. Yeah, it's like he finally cracked. He's gone rogue now. Yeah, he's definitely he's absolutely gone rogue. And the question is, did he crack or was he just were, were these always the thoughts that ran through his head all day? And he just was prevented by some <laughs> corporate mechanism from sharing them with the world. But the latest one, of course, is that and I think the one that probably posted uh, prompted this Venn diagram was when he tried to go and save the kids, the, the soccer team that was trapped in a cave in Thailand and then he got there and found out he wasn't needed. And then he goes on a on a tweet rant where he calls the the people who actually saved one of the people who's actually saving the kids a pedophile. Yeah. So this one of the one of the cave divers did this interview where he basically said that Elon Musk sending a team and a submarine to to Thailand was a was a PR stunt. And uh, this was Elon Musk's retort was to call him a pedophile. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. I don't have any words for for that. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, Elon, uh, I, I, I sure hope he gets back to making cars and rockets because I feel like the work his companies are doing could actually be extremely valuable. And it is extremely valuable. Um, but it would be it would be nice if, if that was what he was doing all I day. Mean, instead one, of... one wonders, like, how many more Model 3s could be produced if he wasn't so busy, like, angrily tweeting at reporters all day. Yeah, so he I, he sleeps on the factory floor at night, supposedly, because he's so dedicated. But then I guess he wakes up on the factory floor and just starts tweeting. All right. I think that'll do it for our tabs this week. Maya, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. All right. That's our show for today. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. You can follow me and April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Arimus. April is at April Laser. Thanks again to our guest today, Vija Gaddy. You can follow her on Twitter at Vija. That's V-I-J-A-Y-A. Thanks to our guest co-host, Maya Kossoff. You can find her at M-E Kossoff. That's M-E-K-O-S-O-F-F. And if you'd leave us a comment and review on iTunes, we would be forever grateful. It helps boost our show, lets more listeners find out about us, helps us sleep at night. Thank you very much. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. Thanks to Alberto Hernandez at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. And thanks to TJ Raphael at Slate in Brooklyn. We'll see you next week.